0: Now, you find that Acts chapter 11, That your Bible will probably fall open there because um, over the last, I think it's eight weeks, we've been looking at Antioch and we often start in this passage or these passages, and that's where I'm going to start today. We've been looking at this series, The Church Worth Talking About. We've looked at courageous in faith, radically inclusive, soaked in grace, dynamically charismatic, serving a bigger vision, caring for the needy. All features of the Antioch Church, which is an amazing church, very uh, key in the early history of the, the Christian church. Um, in fact, we'll see that particularly today in one or two ways. Um, they were the first sort of big Gentile church. They, they had a Gentile probably majority, although they had Jews as well. And it was there that Paul and Barnabas began to work together. Paul began his teaching ministry, which must have been very exciting and then from then on, they spread out and missionary journeys. They obviously affected the whole area. Paul based himself there before his missionary journey. It's a very exciting church. We find it provoking. We want to be a church like that. We believe God's called us to be an Antioch-type church. We do serve a wider region within our group of churches, New Frontiers. I myself have been released in recent months to do more of that this, this very afternoon. I will be over with Guy Miller, and some of you will probably go over as well, for the setting in of Dave Thompson as an elder at Grace Church, Chichester. One of our own elders given away to that new church. Actually, the more, I real, more I've got into it, and only yesterday I was talking to my son and daughter-in-law who were visiting us with, our, with three of our grandchildren. And, then, and we're talking because they go to that church. I feel it's a very key time. Dave and Ali have been great benefit. Um, Eilis uh, was saying how lovely Ali was. She'd got to know Ali, and uh, Ali'd done something at the women's thing. And uh, to, to be honest with you, without going into too much detail, it's a very strategic thing. I think the church had grown quickly. It's only four years old, and it, it's about 400 gathering. But actually, that was a bit of a, a mixed bag in many ways, and I think there was a struggle going on just to hold it together and hold values. And bringing in Dave and Ali, it's like bringing solidity... Really grounded in the word, grounded in the values of our sort of church. Great alongside Steve and Joe. And then as Dave and Pam, who were elders with me actually at Hastings some years ago. They're also joined the team about within the last year, I think. And suddenly there's solidity and it's just a key time for leadership there. And it's, it's I think, going to hold that church through a, what's been a slightly odd, bumpy year or so as all <laughs> settles down. And I think it's going to ensure that it's a healthy, strong, probably Antioch-style church itself. So, Guy Miller, as you know, we don't need to bore you all with the details, but he comes from here as well. So, in actual fact, I think we are appropriately seeing ourselves as having this Antioch model. In which case, battling for the truth is an important part of learning what what God wants to do with us and how uh, he wants churches to be. So we're going to read, actually I've got quite a lot of PowerPoints, they're not points, they're scriptures really, because we are hopping about a fair bit this morning, and so I think all these readings are going to come up on the screen actually, but the title is A Church Worth Talking About, Battling for Truth, and I'm going to read several short passages. The first one is Acts 11, 22 to 26, so let's get started. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Then I think it will be on the screen for you. 13.1, just one verse. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Then hopping along to chapter 15, and the first couple of verses of chapter 15. Again, I think this will be on the screen for you, save you flicking around too much. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch. And we teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. And the rest of 15, or most of it, is about that council at Jerusalem which was very, very important for the future of the church. We have all benefited from the wisdom and the clarity that was brought at that particular council. But after the council, the letters written to the Gentiles saying, no, you don't need to follow the customs of Moses, you can just put faith in Jesus Christ. And so it goes back to Antioch, this letter, and we'll read verses 30 to 35 of Acts 15. The men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the brothers with the blessing of peace to return to those who'd sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch where they and many others taught and preached the word of God. There is no doubt that Antioch... Had a great foundation of good biblical teaching. Teaching the Word. It was a well taught church. And I want to draw a few lessons, five actually, from Antioch and apply it not only to us here in Winchester, but to us as Christians and to churches today in the 21st century, 2,000 years later. For us, the Word of the Lord is by and large in our Bibles. I believe God has taken the revelation that was coming then from himself, the understanding of who Jesus was and what he'd done, which was the issue here, and people like Paul have written it down and we now have it through our Bibles. We need the Spirit to open our eyes to that. We need to have it uh, taught to understand it. But essentially, in many ways, when we're talking about learning the Word of God or battling for truth, this is the main agent by which we receive that Word and that truth. The Bible itself isn't magic, it's not a holy book in the sense of the word, it's a Bible I write in mine, I scribble in the margins, I get it all worn and knocked about. It's like the scabbard, the sword is the word that's in it, that you need to get out of it and get into you by reading or teaching. The word is actually the living truth from the Bible that that the Holy Spirit applies to our lives, so we're not worshipping a holy book particularly. I know some Christians behave like that, it's not wise, this is a means to an end, it encapsulates the word. As I say, often the same words that Paul would have been teaching way back then. We'll see that as we go through this morning. So this church had good foundations. Let's quickly look at a couple of verses, I think they'll go on the screen. Good foundations, 11.23. When he arrived, this is Barnabas, and saw evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Barnabas turns up Antioch and he sees lots of evidence of the grace of God there. We talked about that the other week. He sees tangible evidence that they've received the gospel and mean it and believe it. So what does he do? It says he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was doing what Jesus told his disciples to do. Look at Matthew 28, it'll be on the screen, verses 19 to 20. Jesus said this, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus said right from day one, I want you to make disciples. This is not about a light-hearted allegiance. Oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, I'll tick a box on that. This is about making disciples who hear the teaching of Jesus and obey it. And so Barnabas was keen to ensure that these new converts remained true to the Lord with all their hearts. So I believe right from the start he was doing what always has to happen with authentic Christianity. He was teaching them about Jesus and to obey Jesus, to love Jesus and obey him. He was teaching what Jesus had done for them, what Jesus had taught, and that's still true of any real Christian. Real Christianity is about being a disciple of Jesus. You want to know, what, what, what did Jesus teach? You want to know, what does the Bible say? I want to believe it and obey it. And that's authentic discipleship. And it was how this church was founded. Now, Barnabas clearly had a great gift evangelistically, because it tells us the church grew in verse 24 quite quickly. But he also realised he couldn't quite cope with all the demands going on And he, I think, had a sense in his spirit that this was Paul's time. So we're told in verses 25 and 26, which will go up on the screen, Barnabas went to Tarsus and looked for Saul, and he brought him to Antioch. And then it says this, So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people, and the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. What a year! What would you give to be there for that year? You had the teaching of Barnabas and Paul for a year. They were a well-taught church. Amazing foundations were put in in that year. We're gonna, I'm, I, can't, I can't wait to get to later in my talk. I'm, I want to see what I say. But it's quite exciting because actually I think we can have quite a good idea what they did teach. But you'll have to wait. Stay awake. Um, but anyway... They taught for a year and it was an amazing year. Now that was the foundation of such a healthy, effective church and I want to say with genuine caution, I don't want to be proud, in fact I want to challenge you really, Winchester Family Church is a well-taught church. It's almost rather similar to Antioch. I mean you've had Greg Haslam for 21 years it's a bit like having the Apostle Paul isn't it? He had John, was he a bit of a Barnabas but I mean you have these people, put it together it's nearly 30 years, now I'm, I'm only talking in lifetime of us sitting here I think there's probably a foundation back beyond that now that is great but that means that has to have a, that is an investment of God, it needs an impact, it needs a result it needs fruit, it needs a payback to pay back. Antioch didn't just sit there receiving talk, teaching. They received an incredible teaching, which actually went on, as we saw in chapter 15. They seemed to have another bout of it after the uh, Jerusalem Council. But actually, that was the foundations of them being such an effective missionary church. They were a powerful missionary church. They reached out. They sent people out. We've seen some of it already. We must, brothers and sisters be responsible for what we've heard. We're not meant to just have big, fat sort of minds and heads, you know, wow, we've taught this, you know, we, we know every dot, every I and cross every T. No, no, we need to be able to turn that into effective witness for Jesus, living the life, missionary, outlooking church. And there's another little thing in this verse. It says that Christians were first called... Sorry, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Now, we've talked about that a couple of times. They got the nickname Christ Ones. And it's obvious the reason they got that nickname, they kept on talking about Jesus Christ. And I think that gives us at least a fairly good clue what Barnabas and Saul were teaching them, don't you? Barnabas and Saul were teaching them all about Jesus And these people had a year focused on who Jesus is, what he did, he died and rose again, what that means for you, what the gospel is, how that applies in your life. And the Holy Spirit's come to do this, to make it real. And they were just soaked with Jesus. And so the outside, these people are always on about Jesus Christ. They're the Christ ones. Well, actually, the church took that as an honourable name. And uh, it was taken with pride and applied. So there's a great foundation of being devoted to Jesus. I think if you are going to be effective as a Christian, you must be deeply rooted in understanding who Jesus is and what he's done. It is all about him. We sing that sometimes, but it is all about him. And actually, he is the truth. He's the way, the truth and life. Our faith is a faith in Jesus. Our religion is not really a religion. It's a, it's a relationship with Jesus Christ worked out daily. And that's clearly what was taught here. It was very Jesus-centred. May we always be Jesus-centred. Let's move on quickly. I'll call the next healthy diet. Basically, it, didn't just, it wasn't just a foundation. There was an ongoing spiritual diet. You probably noticed it when we read it, but it's two verses just up if you can, the next two, Acts 13.1 and 15.35, that just indicate this. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. And they're by name called teachers, some of them. And then Paul and Barnabas, after the Jerusalem council, remained there with many others and taught and preached the word of God. There was an ongoing emphasis at Antioch on teaching and that needs to be true here. We never say, right, we've done it, done and dusted it, we, we, don't, we want all sorts of other things now, but you know, we're great and I love worship, you know that. I, I was deeply moved by some of the worship I experienced at uh, Bethel and other places over the summer. But, We must never say that excludes teaching the Word. This church continued to have a diet of teaching God's Word, and so should we. That's part of a healthy diet. And this good atmosphere bred other teachers. It's clear there were many others who taught there. Don't know who they were, but they were, as it were, um, breeding teachers and preachers. They sent people out who were teaching the Word, almost certainly into the whole region around. That's the sort of thing an Antioch church did now, this church does that. We do have a record of producing leaders. As I mentioned Guy, I mentioned Dave, but there's many others. We do have that in us and in our DNA. That's healthy. I think we've got to find ways of doing it more. We, we don't want just to be uh, keeping this to ourselves. They sort of uh, mentored and bred up people who could teach the word of God. Let's go on. Everyone involved. The third point I want to make. Everyone involved. Look at Acts 15, it'll go on your screen. Acts 15, 30 to 31, which comes towards the end of of the story in Acts 15. The men were sent off, went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Now just notice, you can read the Bible and not notice something. Notice this was the whole church. When they wrote the letter, which was very important, it was explaining what the Gentiles needed to do and largely saying what they didn't need to do in order to be real followers of Jesus. They didn't need to do all the law-keeping. But it wasn't a letter written just to the leaders. It's not Paul and Barnabas read it in their little room and then came out and explained it to everybody. It wasn't just for the, the leaders or the teachers. The whole church wanted to hear it. It was important to all of them. What is the truth? What is God saying? What are we to do? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? It is not a healthy attitude for us, any of us, to think it's all up to John and Steve and people like that to to teach the word and they do the study and they do the thinking and we just sort of sit and listen and decide whether we like it or not. There's a sense in everybody's spirit here. We all need to hear this. We all need to understand it. Every Christian needs to know the truth. Every Christian needs to think it through. I was so glad that so many of you came to the Atonement Talk last Sunday evening. It was quite dense, it was quite full of material, wasn't it? I do know that. But I understand you might not all say, cool, I wouldn't want to do what John did. I I mean, thank God I've got not just gifting, I've got time to, to actually read stuff. You might not want to do it, but you need to understand it. You need to get it as best you can, what Jesus has done. And I think that's the attitude, not only of Antioch, but of the early church generally. I think we can forget the letters we have in our New Testament were written to churches. Romans, Galatians, Corinthians, choose anyone you like. They're written to bunches of people. They weren't written to, I mean, we almost could think in our day and age, it'd be written to John, and you know, or to Steve or somebody like that. And then, you know, the rest of us don't need that to read all that stuff. Well, of course you do. They were written, the whole church, you know, sometimes we look at it and we say, cool, Romans, is quite hard to understand, you know, and, and cool, what about this bit? Now, you need to remember, these were initially read to people, some of which, many of which possibly, couldn't read and write, they were slaves, and they would sit and listen to the whole thing being read carefully out, and repeated, and copied out, and repeated again. But actually, everybody was assumed they wanted to hear it and understand it, and they did, and I trust that's true of us. And any church, never get into that. I don't want to. don't want to. Just give me, you know, let them do that. Let the professionals do it. Don't let us ever allow that remotely to drop into our thinking. We need to be involved in understanding and applying the truth of God's word. Let's look on now at strong grip, the fourth point. They had a strong grasp of God's truth. Now this bit, this four and five are going to be a little longer points, i warn you. But I think they're very important, they're key to what we're looking at. At Antioch they had a stronger grasp on God's truth and they had to make a bold defence of that truth. Now that defence was indeed led by their leaders, Paul and Barnabas. But I want you to know between AD 47 and AD 49, this church and its leaders probably... We have a lot to owe them. That's all I'll say. Probably had a very important role, humanly speaking, in making sure the gospel was kept clear. There was a strong pressure. You can read it as we have in verses 15, uh, chapter 15. We'll just read it, verses 1 to 2. Some there was a strong pressure to make Christianity just a subsection of Judaism. And if you followed Jesus, who was accepted as the Messiah by many uh, of those uh, Orthodox Jews, as we'd say, they said, well, that's fine, but that brings you into all that Moses had. And they were teaching this. Look, some men came down from Judea to Antioch were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Quite important. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with others, to go up to Jerusalem to help sort it all out. This was a key time in history. These guys came from Judea. They were in the circle of believers. Some of them probably were believers. But they really saw that Jesus the Messiah, all that was doing was going to bring people into proper obedience to God's law, Old Testament. They were teaching Jesus plus law. They taught, yeah, it's fine to put faith in Jesus, but if you don't obey the law, you are not saved. Now, that battle is not quite the battle we live with today, but that principle has resonated through church history. It's called legalism. It's that if you put faith in Jesus, that's fine, but you must attach to it a very vigorous attendance to law. Sometimes people do use the Old Testament law in that way, but sometimes they add all their own rules, as indeed Pharisees and Sadducees have done anyway. And they say, you've got it's Jesus plus all of this, otherwise you're not really a Christian. That's a very key issue. And that was the battleground, the battleground here in Antioch. It's grace and spirit as opposed to law and works. Paul and Barnabas are deeply committed, Paul most deeply of all, as we'll see, to the grasp of this truth that the gospel is faith in Jesus alone, it's the grace of God, the free gift of God, and it works out through the Holy Spirit. And it is not sort of a bit of that plus law and works. And Paul was fighting for that and he fought vigorously. And it's a vital truth that we can be grateful was established throughout the Church of Jesus Christ in the period around this time, these few years. Actually, I love this. I hope I don't get too geeky on you this morning, too anorak But I actually quite love the sort of thing I'm going to talk about, so bear with me. It's not about trains or something like that, but it's about the Bible. But I do love it. What happens in Acts 15, and around this verse 1 and 2 we looked at, is parallel to the book of Galatians in your Bible. If you've got a Bible, flick over to the book of Galatians. Galatians just before Ephesians. I think it's fascinating when this begins to click in your brain. If you like the Bible, you're, I hope you'll enjoy this. And even if you don't, I hope you find it interesting. Because this is how we read our Bible. Our Bible's not some sort of weird book written by one sort of funny little chap sitting in a cave, scratching away, thinking, what will I give them today? Oh, the angel doodledobs has turned up. No, no, that's not how the Bible was written. The Bible was real people writing to real people out of their experience of God and the Holy Spirit teaching them. And actually, Paul wrote the letter to Galatians. He wrote it one day, or over a couple of days, I expect. He sat down and wrote it and he sent it to real people he'd visited because he was very concerned about what was happening. And God, by his wisdom and oversight, made sure that we caught the revelation of that because he made sure that was gathered together as an authoritative scripture. So they gathered together these letters and they began to circulate around all the early church, long before we had our Bibles. And people said, this is a good one. (laughs) You'll learn a lot from this one. This carries authority. This gives us insight and revelation. That's what happened. That's how we got our Bibles. But the book of Galatians, this is it, was possibly, is possibly, the earliest book in the New Testament. It's possibly the one that, if you like, is oldest from our point of view. It's the earliest, first written. And it was undoubtedly, almost undoubtedly, I think most commentators agree with this, written at the same time as the Acts 15 you've just read. It's written right in the middle of all this controversy. And in actual fact, it is very likely indeed, it is written before the Jerusalem Council. Now you can work that out elementary, my dear Watson, because the whole thing is about the Judaizers and their pressure, and Paul never mentions the letter which we now know was written from Jerusalem, which would have been an obvious thing to mention. It would have resolved much of the dispute. So there is no reference to the Jerusalem letter uh, from the Council of Jerusalem. So it's almost certainly written before that was finalised. So this letter comes from this very period, the late AD 40s. And it's written in the midst of what's described as a sharp dispute and debate. We read that in Acts 15. They are battling for truth. They are battling, and it is a battle. Sharp dispute, or whatever it's called. Was it sharp? Sharp dispute and debate, I think, is a bit of an understatement. Look at some of this. Look at look at what was actually going on. Galatians 2, 11 to 14, it's going to go up. Look at this. When Peter came to Antioch, see? It's Antioch-based, this... this Paul wrote Galatians from Antioch. He was in Antioch when he wrote it, just to let you know, and he wrote it to the churches he visited on his first missionary journey. So it's about Acts 15, about that time. After they come back, Paul and Barnabas, they see all that's going on, all this stuff with the Judaizers, and that's when he writes it. And he writes this, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he was clearly in the wrong When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Paul was having a sharp dispute. Even good men like Peter and Barnabas were wobbling. They were wobbling. They thought, whoa, perhaps can we really say don't take any notice of the law? Are we really saying the law hasn't got anything to offer? It's all by the Spirit in faith in Jesus. That's a tough... No wonder Christians wobble with it. Even Peter and Barnabas had a wobble. And I think it's Paul who strengthens them. And Paul was such a clear grasp of what was going on that he was the one who led the party that went down to uh, Jerusalem. You see, Paul's credibility was enormous. Paul had incredible uh, sort of, if you like, street cred within the church. I'll tell you how and why. Apart from his clear ability to teach, it wasn't so much that. He had a top-class Jewish pedigree. If anybody was going to be locked into the law, it would be the Apostle Paul. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He'd been educated under Gamaliel. He had a top-class Jewish brain, but he actually knew the law inside out. In fact, he was so zealous for the law that he himself was a leading Judaizer. He had gone round more than... he was persecuting Christians. He'd made sure Stephen was martyred. Paul had been very clear about the law. In, In keeping the Jewish law, he was exemplary. But... He was radically converted. Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus. The whole thing turned his world upside down. He put faith in Jesus Christ. He realised that his sins were forgiven through what Jesus had done on the cross. And it was all by grace. And the Holy Spirit would fall on him and others and had fallen on him when Ananias prayed for him. We read that earlier in Acts some other time. And the Spirit of God came on him and he realised God came on the inside and changed him. We don't need the law. I understand it. Jesus fulfils the law. All that stuff, all those promises come to fruition in Jesus. And Paul got it. Now, he'd also meditated on it. He'd been away some years, a nobody really, meditating on what he knew, meditating on Jesus. And it's Barnabas who brings him central stage, as we saw. And all of that meditation, all of that understanding comes to fruit. And Paul says, no, we are not losing this. And he holds the line even when Barnabas and uh, and Peter waver. The gospel is for all nations. It's by faith alone. Jesus is is the son of David, fulfilling the promises of Abraham, reaching to the nations like Isaiah prophesied. Paul saw it. Now, he was in no mood to give this ground away, (laughs) I've got to quickly look, because I love some of this. Look at these verses. I know this is going to leave. You're going to go home. You're going to need that lunch, you students. Because it's going to make your brains work a bit fast. But look, this is how some of the things Paul wrote in Galatians. Galatians two, uh, Galatians 1, I beg your pardon. I am astonished you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. I mean, it's very outspoken. It's no good. What good news is it? The law. That's not good news. Gospel means good news. This is not good news. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let him be eternally condemned. It's not taking any prisoners. If anybody, as we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. This is from this time. Paul's saying there's no hope outside Jesus. That's not good news. Forget it. And if he's preaching it to you, let him be damned. Then look look at Galatians 2, 4 and 5. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. See, This is what Paul's fighting for, the truth of the gospel. These churches were being infiltrated, not only Antioch, but all of them with this teaching. Verse Quickly, we'll just look at them. Galatians 3, verses 1 to 3. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? (laughs) Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Hey, there's a one for you. How do you receive the Spirit? Not by your performance, what you do. You put faith in what God's taught. The Spirit comes by faith. He said, What are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you trying now to attain your goal by human effort? You could say that all through church history, and it has been said, that's why God wanted us to have it. Are you so stupid? That's what he's saying. Are you so thick? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal with human effort? If God managed to save you without your effort, what are you doing now? Thinking it's all down your effort. He's quite cross, isn't he? Very cross, actually. Look at this last one. Galatians 5, verses 7 to 12. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from one of the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. I love that one, don't you? They want to circumcise themselves, they can cut the lot off. That's what he says. That's what he's saying. It's not politically correct, is it? It's not what you hear from most pulpits. But that's what he's saying. That's what they want. I wish they cut everything off. I mean, that is what he's actually saying. He's cross. <laughs> Why? Why is he cross? Because this is a truth worth fighting for. This is about Jesus. We don't need Jesus and circumcision. We really don't. We don't need Jesus plus. It's all about him. He is the one way. He's the one we put faith in. It's his work, not my work, that's going to get me to heaven. I'm trusting in him. I'm not trusting in my performance as a believer. You started in faith in the Spirit. What are you doing adding all this effort to it? Now you've got it, you've got to add a load of clutter. What's the matter? It's still by fact you almost keep living as you got saved. When you fail, you repent. God, I'm sorry I let you down. And you don't go through purgatory. Don't say, I'm sorry and I'll also fast for 10 weeks or, I don't know, push a peanut with my nose up St. Catherine's Hill or something (laughs) to show you I'm serious. No, you don't. You receive by faith the forgiveness through the blood of Jesus. And you let the Spirit fill you again. You walk on in the Spirit. That's what it's all about. And I think we can have a fairly good idea of what Paul taught. And this next bit, I'm going to have to be very careful. I might not be able to do all I want to do in the last five minutes, but listen to it. Try and get something from it. Because when I was meditating on this, I thought, I've shown you that Paul was contending. What was the truth he was battling for? What was the truth he was battling for? Why is he so cross? And also, what would he have been teaching in Antioch? That's what I'd like to know, wouldn't you? Wouldn't it be a privilege to have the Apostle Paul teaching here this morning? I bet you'd all listen. But God's ensured we do have it. In Galatians, we have essentially the sort of stuff Paul would have been teaching. Let that sink in. If you don't do anything else from this morning, go home and read Galatians this week. Go home and read Galatians. I think in Galatians, you undoubtedly have the essence of what Paul was teaching at this time to his churches, of which Antioch was one. So if you're in Antioch at this time, this is the sort of life-changing truths that you would have been taught. And we'll do a very quick skim, just a taster. Look at it, you're going to have to move, Tim, sorry about this. Galatians 2, verse 16. We know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. But Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. That was what they were fighting for, that is what he was teaching. Justified means right standing, given right standing before God, made righteous before God. How can a man or a woman be righteous before the living God, the creator of all things? Right standing through faith in Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection. We have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in him. Then let's look at Galatians 2.20. What does it mean to be a Christian? What is the radical nature of Christian faith? Well, here it is. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Leave that one up, Tim, for a moment, please. Thanks. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If I have to linger over a couple of these and don't do them all, God knows that's the right thing to do. I don't want you to miss this verse. This is the teaching of about AD 4750 to the first wave of Christian converts, particularly the Antioch, the Gentile converts. This is the teaching. This is still the gospel, folks. When you become a Christian, you are united with Jesus Christ. When he died, you died. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. Whoa, that's the gospel. And look how personal it is. It's incredible. The son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's just like David's thing about the miners. There's a whole group of them down there. There's a whole community when they're up top. But getting from down there to up top, each one had to get into that capsule. Each one has to get into Christ. Each one of you, you can't, your parents can't do it for you, your, your, your church doesn't do it for you, the upbringing, you have to put your faith in Jesus. You have to be able to say, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Can you say that this morning? Yeah. Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. And this is Paul, the Arch Jew, the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He's got it. It's in his spirit and he is teaching it. And he is reminding these people, you know what I taught you. I taught you Christ crucified. What are you doing? I told you all about the cross. And I told you that the Son of God loved you and gave Himself for you. So you now live by faith in him. Christianity is not a religion, it's a life. Your whole life is faith in him. Let's look, we will go on. Next one. I've looked at this one, really. three five quickly. Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? I put this one up because I thought some of us old crusty evangelicals might need to notice that just by the way, Paul refers to them receiving the Spirit and seeing miracles among them. So that was going on. It wasn't just only the apostles that did miracles. Miracles were in the church. There was a power in the church. There was a power of the Spirit. But Paul is saying, you know how that comes. That doesn't come by your performance. That comes by you believing the Word of God. As you believe what you hear from God, you saw the Spirit come and you saw miracles amongst you. Hallelujah. More, Lord. Look at this one. This is glorious theology. Galatians three thirteen to 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. There you are. Penal substitution, those of you who were here last Sunday. It's all there. It's what he was teaching. How are you redeemed from the curse? By Christ becoming curse for you. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. I tell you, when you read Galatians, the Holy Spirit is all over Galatians. You know, it's not just word, it's word and spirit. He talks about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. We're not going to have time, I'm sure, to look at those scriptures. I've got old stacks of them here. Tim's sitting there wondering what I'm doing. But I tell you, The Holy Spirit is a vital part of our Christian faith. He is. It's not just head knowledge, it's the Spirit. And he says, the promise of the Spirit came, and it's the promise that was to Abraham. You've come into everything that God promised through Abraham. There's marvellous stuff. We will look at the next one. Look at this, Galatians 3.22. But the Scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner to sin. Got it? This is a fundamental truth, so that what was promised was given through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, um, sorry, so what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. I'll just calm down because I won't speak properly. Just get this. It is Christian doctrine from the beginning that there is one answer to the world's problems it's Jesus Christ. It's faith in the cross, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That is the answer. The whole world is a prisoner to sin. The problem with the world is the problem that's in every human heart. There's a sin problem. Not everything everybody does is wrong. That's not true at all. But everything is tainted with greed and pride and lust and envy and ulterior motives. and It all gets sometimes very serious indeed. We get all sorts of hatred and rape and murder. But, but many people don't do that, but there's all this can't, sort of... Carnality, all this sin in everything. The whole world is a slave to sin. The whole world is a prisoner to sin. But there is an answer. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we can be set free from that prisoner to sin. I want you to miss the next two slides, Tim, if you can technically do that, and go to Galatians 5, 1 and 13. Thank you. I've got loads of stuff here, because I just enjoyed myself in Galatians all week. And I thought, oh, I better preach from lax, so I'll, I'll somehow slip it in. But look at this. It's for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You, my brothers, are called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather serve one another in love. This is in context. Read it in context, but this is about what it is to be a Christian. You have been set free from slavery to sin. It's wonderful. Don't go back to it, he says. Stand firm in your freedom. It's not about merely law, it's sin as well. And he says, use this new life to serve one another in love, which I think is a beautiful throwaway phrase, really. They were teaching people this freedom meant you're free to love each other. Then let's go to the next one. It's all part of a similar context. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So Paul taught them, live in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit and you will not keep falling into sin. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. These are fruits the Spirit will bring out in your life as you walk in the Spirit. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. What's the way to live a holy life? Walk in the Spirit. Keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Love Jesus, be filled with the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. And let the fruit of the Holy Spirit change you. The expulsive power of that new affection. Love, peace, joy, beginning to burst and fruit in your life, which will take away some of the awful works of the flesh that Paul refers to earlier in that same chapter. And so we come to something just from his last chapter, 6. A wonderful summary of what I think he was teaching. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he kept on about, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. (laughs) Exactly. Like, you're all arguing about circumcision and circumcision. Oh, you know, I'm a Jew circumcised. I'm not. I mean, you get both sides. You get people who are proud of not being circumcised, probably. But in the end, he says, what counts is a new creation. And that comes through the cross of Jesus Christ, which is a radical cutting off. I don't need a physical circumcision. I've had a spiritual one. I've been cut off from Satan's kingdom. I've been cut off from judgment. I've been cut off from the world through the cross of Jesus Christ. And I now live in this new creation by the Spirit. Now, that is Christianity, folks. That's what Antioch was being taught. And that was, I won't have any more slides, thanks to him, and that was applied in their lives. And if you're going to be a church, if we're going to be a church worth talking about, we've got to be these sort of people. This is the truth that Antioch would have been brought up on. And it probably was restated... At the end of Acts 15, they came back with the new confidence, yep, we've got it, you know, we're not going to go back to the law. And and this is the sort of stuff Paul was nailing down right at this very moment in history. I I find that quite powerful to me. Let's stand together.